Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon, it's Madam Adams. Right now, I feel like I'm going to toss out just a salad of information. Why? Because that's what I feel like doing. I'm... One thing I'm being told is that two New York City restaurants are now telling customers their loyalty reward program tracks with the value of Bitcoin. Oh, that's so great. Suddenly, I am telling you that if this is happening to you, be aware, lousy Bitcoin is newly giving fresh meaning to the term doggy bag. Another sour note, I am also being told, and I don't know where this is coming from, but this is coming from information that is being funneled to us from abroad. I am being told that Putin the pig is listening to lots of classical music, especially his favorite Tchaikovsky. Intelligence reports indicate that he sees this invasion like a symphony. I don't know where the hell that's coming from. I'm just reporting. That's what I hear. Now, some eccentricities. England's former, long-ago Duchess of Ferguson. Remember Fergie? She was married for an hour and a half to that prince who maybe spent more than an hour and a half with that jailed Epstein who did himself in. Well, supposedly, this ex-Duchess Fergie gave our late Princess Diana foot warts. Whatever exactly they are, I don't know, but this is what she told me. Now, Michelle Pfeiffer, more eccentricities. Michelle Pfeiffer has said, quote, a guy wearing loafers ruins a sexy man for me. What that means, I don't know. I don't care either. I'm just telling you what I hear. Tara Lipinski, remember when she was schlepping around on skates? At the time she was skating, she wouldn't go on skates without wearing six rings. I don't know why. I don't care either. Oliver Wendell Holmes, who hasn't said anything lately, once said, potatoes and chestnuts ward off rheumatism. And Brad Pitt once dreamt, actually, and he admitted it, And he said so. He once dreamt of everyone using his toothbrush. And Salman Rushdie's car, you know the author? The car was so heavily armored that it nearly once sunk in a parking field. And Prince William, he once itched to be in a comedy written by Kenneth Branagh. This is going to be the King of England. And now I wish to discuss two columns I wrote this past week in the New York Post. The first one is short, and it read, Sunday Andrew Cuomo made a speech in Buffalo. You read about that. He flew by private jet 
so maybe his war chest sprang for that flight. You did not read about that. Immediately afterward, Andrew headed to a beach. You definitely didn't read about that. But here's what I know, and I had it absolutely sure. His plane's jet tail number was N like Nancy, 2-6, V like victory, J like Jordan. It left White Plains Airport, 6.45 a.m. It landed in Buffalo, 7.51. He spoke in a church only to get a photo op. He did not hand out the food afterward, which everyone else did, nor did he say where he's living. Maybe he's bunking in the attic at Hut Hokel. Who knows? He then took off 940 for Martha's Vineyard, the beach. You didn't read about that. So what I want to tell you is I then got cranky phone calls from a couple of cockroaches who worked for Andrew Cuomo. So here was my second column. This story starts with Once Upon a Time. It's a long column. Bear with me. Once Upon a Time, Mario Cuomo was governor of New York. I knew him long before he was in even lieutenant governor. We even loved one another. He's been to my home. We've had dinners, parties, evenings, secrets together. We've huddled about people. We've talked about everyone else. I knew the family. I spent time with his wife. Of my heart full of experiences, I this moment, right at this second, can remember five. One, he brought me up to the official governor's residence for an entire day. The two of us went through all the rooms. He reminisced. He told me stories. Another time, when he came over to my home for dinner, he studied my ceilings and walls covered with my hundreds of front pages. But he was upset. He saw one that had a January 5, 1992 screaming post headline that said, Draft Him. And it was accompanied with his photo. Full page, front page. So why was he upset? Because, he said, it's positioned half hidden behind a table. I am coming to a point, but I'm going to finish talking about Mario. Back when some government ruling created a problem, it became a roundelay for the New York Post. Rupert Murdoch then called Mario daily. But also, unknown to most people, daily this sitting governor of New York State then called me. Mario was the official thinker. Me, I was the creative. Some of this has been reported in a book our Steve Cuso, the reporter, has written. There's a time when Mario invited me to his tiny little table. The table only seated three. 
The three of us were him, wife Matilda, and me. It was a fundraiser where Andrew and his then-wife Carrie, whom he since dumped, the three were speaking on a microphone. Andrew spoke and Carrie and spoke and spoke and spoke. Forget that the crowd left years ago. They're probably still at that mic speaking. Now comes Andrew. All these years he was in the office, no interview for me, never happened. Not on the phone, not in person, no Q&A, nothing ever. A PR guy, his close friend, stood with me at Yankee Stadium one day and even called Andrew on his private line, talked to him, and requested a meeting with me. Zero. Nada. Never happened. Not even one note, phone call, flowers, invite, acknowledgement, smart letter, nothing. Now, suddenly, after I wrote about his taking a private jet that he didn't pay for, he had two of his busy cockroaches call me. He didn't call personally. He's too involved denying facts. I reported the day after this, the day before this, I reported he flew to Buffalo. It was a quick photo op. It was not a commercial flight. It was a private plane, which something, somebody, somehow underwrote. I listed the tail number. Once there... He did not hang around long enough to rush behind the altar and prep the congregation a veal cutlet. Word was he went straight to the beach afterward in Martha's Vineyard. His Charlie McCarthy dummies called me twice. Their hand-operated mouths moved twice to say I was incorrect. My information was incorrect. Andrew did not fly back. He drove. Yeah, okay. So he stuck that paid airplane in the glove compartment? Okay, by me. And another of his people called to bitch about something else I was saying. Where were all these calls from them over the last eight years. Phones in the senior citizen homes were disconnected. Maybe they're all still on that plane. I really don't know. But now I say I have heard from Andrew. But before I leave you, all the millions of you, for a quick station break, I give you just one thought. It's summertime. More people are in the parks than pigeons. Miami is suddenly as empty as our current mayor's head. Here's where those Florida wintertime seniors in their Ferraris, Rolls Royces, and stuffed shirts, they're all back up here, and they've changed to Fords, Volkswagens, and stuffed shorts. They're all in the Hamptons, kids. Stick with me, I'll be right back to talk with a former New York City police commissioner, Howard Safer, 
who will tell us how to straighten out this city, and to talk to ABC's lawyer and reporter, Dan Abrams. Back in two minutes. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Howard Safer was our New York City police commissioner, 1996 to 2000. Wasn't the city safe then, Howard? We were the safest large city in America. Did we not have the largest police force in America? We did. We had 41,200 police officers. What do we got now? About 35,000. So tell me, how was the city safe then under you? And we've now got some sort of a roach in the White House at this moment. Tell me how that happened. Well, you know, number one, uh, Rudy Giuliani came back to New York and said he was going to clean up the city and reduce crime. That's how he got elected. You know, a Republican in a very Democratic city got elected because the public was tired of crime everywhere in the city. And when he asked me to be police commissioner, I knew that I would never have to look behind me. And building on what Bill Bratton did before me, uh, we instituted broken windows. And broken windows basically says if somebody submits a, commits a small crime, they're probably going to commit a larger crime. Or if they are, if they know that you're enforcing every law in the city, that they're not going to easily commit crimes because they know they're going to have a certainty of arrest. And probably one of the number one issues with Broken Window at the time was people jumping over subway turnstiles. Yeah. Believe it, believe it or not, 250,000 people a month were evading fares, jumping over turnstiles. It was like an Olympic sport. And what we found when we started enforcing all fare jumpers, we found people with guns, we found people with drugs. We even solved a number of murders by arresting people jumping over turnstiles. And what we did is we arrested them. We did not give them a summons. We took them, we fingerprinted them, uh, we photographed them, and then we gave them a desk appearance ticket. But we then had them in our files so that if they committed other crimes in the future, we knew who they were. And that's how we actually uh, solved a series of three murders, including a Central Park murder, uh, shortly thereafter. Okay, this is like a childlike question. I mean, everybody is asking the same thing. Were you in charge now? What would you be doing? I would be doing exactly what we did before, which is we would be enforcing broken windows, you know, people, aggressive panhandling, getting homeless people into shelters, uh, making sure that there was no people using squeegees on the street. You remember the squeegee people who used yeah, to... Yeah, of course I do. Yeah, people. yeah. And we got them off the street. And we sent a message to criminals that if you commit a crime, you're going to get arrested. And we did it by deploying plainclothes units in those areas that had the most crime. And then we used ComStat, which is computerized statistics, to make sure that we sent our resources to the places where crime was. And, you know, unlike today, where if you send cops into a, a black neighborhood, and they call you a racist. Back then, the good people of those neighborhoods 
understood that the majority of victims of crime were black and the majorities of crimes were committed by blacks. And that's why they were happy to see more police in their neighborhoods. How do you handle the gun situation with people's shadow guns, guns that don't have any licenses? How do you stop that? It's not about guns. It's about criminals. The fact is there are more guns in this country than people. But when you send a clear message that if you're walking down the street with a gun, that you have specially trained police officers like our street crime unit was, who can easily detect whether or not you're carrying a gun and can use what is constitutional, something called stop, question, and frisk, and stop and ask you questions. And if they think you're carrying a gun, search you. And if they have reasonable suspicion, and because of that, criminals stopped carrying their guns in the street. They kept them in their apartments or houses or wherever, but they didn't carry them in the street where they're going to shoot innocent people. But people are now afraid. The police are afraid. The elected officials are afraid. What should our useless mayor do? This police chief that he has anointed doesn't speak anywhere. Can you tell us what we should be doing? Well, there's a number of things. But, Cindy, you have to realize one thing. Police are only one-third of the three-legged stool of criminal justice. Yeah. There's the district attorney and the courts. And if cops go out and arrest people and they see them instantly let out on no bail to commit the same crime again, they're not going to be anxious to go out and prevent crime. They're going to react to crimes in process, but they're not going to do what we did, which which I call assertive policing, where you go out and you seek out criminals and prevent crimes. Because, you know, once you make an arrest, it's a failure. Somebody's a victim. So what you have to do is, one, create an atmosphere where criminals are afraid of police, not the public, and make sure that you have enough police on the street, in the subway, all over the city that Criminals are not going to do smashing grabs. Criminals are not going to assault people. And criminals are not going to have gunfights, open gunfights in the street where innocent people are collateral damage. All of that's happening now, and it has to change. What about the Second Amendment? I am not against the Second Amendment, but I think we need to change how we let people buy assault weapons. You know, one of the things that has struck me since Columbine, which is 10 years ago, is that all of our school shootings involve young men 18 or under carrying AR-15 or similar assault rifles. Because right now you can go into a gun store in just about any state. If you're 18 years old, you give them your ID, you fill out a, a relatively useless form. They do a what's called an instant background check, which doesn't really check that much. And they give you, like this kid in Texas, Ramos, he walked in, put down $2,000, got two assault weapons and 375 rounds of ammunition. That's crazy. Right now, Go ahead. Go, go, go. You you know, the Federal Firearms Act right now says that citizens can buy a machine gun. But to buy a machine gun, the law says you have to get fingerprinted, photographed. You have to be vetted by a police organization, and you have to pay $200 tax. Why not put those assault weapons in that same category? They're not because they're semi-automatic instead of full automatic like machine guns, but they're just as dangerous. And we should put that 
kind of regulation in place where you have to go through the same hoops as buying a machine gun, and that way young 18-year-olds are not on instinct going to go into a gun store and instantly walk out with a weapon of destruction. That's what we need to change. And, you know, the NRA will be against anything, but that's not banning assault weapons like the Congress refuses to do. That's making people responsible for their actions. How do you rein in gun dealers? Well, just as I just described, if they don't have the ability to sell hundreds of assault weapons with just an instant background check and they have to go through all that hoops, people are not going to be able to buy those guns. Well, but there are spooky guns. I don't understand that. How is it possible they can buy spooky guns that don't have numbers on them and stuff like that? How does that happen? Well, they, they have to pass legislation, and I know that there is some legislation pending, whether or not it gets through or not. But basically what they do is they buy the parts for the guns on the Internet and then put them together. Oh, I see. What did you, what did you do with hoodlums? Did you have enough jails? Why are we running out of jails? Why are we letting all these people out? We're not running out of jails. The district attorneys are not putting them in jails. The fact is, when I was police commissioner, the population at Rikers was about 17,000. I think it's like 5,000 now, which just tells you that they're just, you know, catch and release. That's what's happening with criminals in our city. So what would you do, Howard, if you were running the New York City police now? How could you get anything done because everybody fights everything you try to do. Well, you know, it would be, honestly, Cindy, it would be very difficult because of the atmosphere. You know, Rudy made sure when I was police commissioner that the district attorneys were doing what they were supposed to. And we had great district attorneys like Bob Morgenthau uh, in Manhattan yeah, yeah, at the time yeah, and Judge Brown yeah. in Queens. You know, so, you know, the criminal justice system was working the way it was supposed to work. But, you know, even the best police executive, if he arrests people and brings them for prosecution, then they, they don't get prosecuted. They're not going to fix anything. Okay, so this is like a childlike question, like if I was in kindergarten. It's a dumb-ass question. Where are we going, Howard? What is going to happen to us? Well, unfortunately, unless the district attorneys change and the bail legislation changes and the gun legislation changes, uh, what you're going to see is what's happening now. People are going to flee the big cities and go to places like Florida and Texas and Arizona and New Mexico, where people still believe in law and order. Yeah, well, in Texas, it wasn't so good. I just don't yeah, understand what's was... going to happen with all the leftists coming out and fighting anything that's proper. I just don't see a future for us. Well, I am optimistic about the midterms because if the midterms uh, turn around who can co controls Congress, you're going to see a very quick move to the center and to the right, and you're going to see law and order people starting to get elected again, and then we're going to start changing this. But it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, it took us, you know, five years or six years to get things right in New York, and then the Blasio ruined it in seven years and eight years, and now it's going to take a number of years to change this. It's not going to happen overnight, but it has to start. And so far, although I see Commissioner Sewell trying her best, 
if she doesn't have the resources and the absolute backing of the mayor, it's not going to happen. Well, you have made me feel really wonderful now. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but I you. love you, and I'm glad you came on, and thank you for calling in, Howard. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the calm, intelligent voice I need to hear. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Dan Abrams is a media entrepreneur. He's a TV host. He's a legal commentator. He's on TV every 20 minutes. And he's author of a new book. And he's also chief legal analyst of ABC News. So he should have something interesting to tell me. My friend, Dan. So, Dan, I, I mean, you're, you're on everything. What are you on? You're in more places. You, you go to more places than Kathy Hochul. W- what are you doing now? You're everywhere. I, I am doing a lot of different things right now. I am with ABC as the chief legal correspondent. I host a show on News Nation weeknights at 9 p.m. I host shows for A&E Network, uh, one of which is called Court Cam. I host a daily serious radio show on the POTUS channel at 2 o'clock. But the biggest thing I do are the businesses uh, that I own. I own a media company. Uh, we own a, a network called Law and Crime Network. I own a website called Mediaite.com. And oh. uh, it goes on. So okay, it's fun. okay, okay. Where and when did, when did you go to school? Where, where, where did you go to school? I went to school, man, I went to school in Manhattan, a private school in the city. And then I went to Duke and to Columbia Law School. Why did you become a lawyer? I know why, but tell us. Well, you know, I think it's one of these things where I didn't really necessarily want to be a lawyer. I thought I did, kind of. I didn't really know, but I knew that my dad, Floyd Abrams, um, was a lawyer, and he really liked what he did. And I think when you see a parent who's doing something that they enjoy, you gravitate towards it. My sister is also a lawyer. She's a federal judge now. So, you know, I think that I think it would just sort of ran in the family. Well, Floyd Abrams was a very famous lawyer, your father. I mean, just the best. And of course, I did know him. So uh, the, the question I don't quite understand, if you're a crook and you have a smart ass lawyer, you can get off. What is that? Is the is the law so flexible or are you guys so smart? <laughs> You know, it's not that easy, I got to tell you. I mean, most crooks get convicted. Most people who are tried get convicted. Um, So, yes, there are occasions when crooks with a lot of money, particularly um, in the, you know, sort of white-collar space, can, you know, avoid justice in one way or another. But, you know, there are also a lot of people, you know, you look at uh, Dennis Kozlowski, you look at the Enron folks, even Martha Stewart. I mean, you know, they, these are people with a lot of money who went to trial, et cetera, and, and got convicted. So, yes, it's true that having a very good lawyer helps a lot. 
but it doesn't necessarily get you off. I don't think you answered my question at all, but I'm very happy and I love you. I don't care what. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know you now have a book. You always have a book out. Tell us about the book. What is it about? The new book is called Alabama v. King, Martin Luther King Jr. and the criminal trial that sparked the civil rights movement. And it's about a forgotten case from 1956 where Martin Luther King was tried. We, we uncovered the transcript of King's own testimony in the case. Basically, it came in the wake of the Montgomery bus boycott. So Rosa Parks is arrested. 40,000 black residents of Montgomery decide to boycott the buses. When they can't get them back on the buses, they decide, well, let's try and use the law to force people to get back. So they prosecute King and 88 other people for violating some arcane boycott statute. And the national, as a result of that case, that case is the reason he was in the national stage. It was the first time he was in the New York Times, the first time he was mentioned uh, beyond sort of his local world in Montgomery. You're talking about Martha, you mean King? That's the first time he was ever mentioned everywhere? Ever. First time Martin Luther King, he was was 27 years old at the time. He was a local minister. He wasn't even a civil, he wasn't even a civil rights activist. He just happened that they picked him. My co-author, 91-year-old Fred Gray, was one of the two people who picked Martin Luther King to be the spokesperson for this Montgomery bus boycott. And that is what put him on the map. But in particular, it was this trial, this forgotten trial that we write about in this book, Alabama v. King, that did it. You know, you don't know. My husband, my late husband, the comedian Joey Adams, who was president of all the actors, he led the parade when we all marched on that city. And I was a young kid there. I was in that parade, I uh, in that march. I know all about it. But the, this book is all about some other people as well. Didn't you do something on Lincoln as well? I did. I So the first book, this is the fifth book in a series that my uh, regular co-author, David Fisher, and I have done. And the first book was about what's called Lincoln's Last Trial. And it was about a criminal case where Abraham Lincoln, as a lawyer, Nine months before he got the Republican nomination, represented a a murder defendant. And he had the transcript. And that was the amazing part of this story is that there was this transcript out there. that was only uncovered in someone's garage. The great grandson of the defendant with a yellow bow around it only discovered in 1989. And there it is, a trial, the only transcript that exists of Abraham Lincoln as a lawyer, my co-author said to me at the time, we knew each other socially, he said, you know, I, I found this transcript. He said, no one seems to have written about it. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. There's some transcript <laughs> yeah. out there of an Abraham Lincoln trial that no one's writing about. But he was right. But how did you know it was legit? I had to dig. I had to dig a little bit when he told me about it. And then I found a New York Times article from 1989. It was uncovered. A transcript, the only one that exists of an Abraham Lincoln trial. But it wasn't just that there was a transcript. It was that the trial was super interesting. It was a really close murder trial. And that's part of what made it so exciting to work on that book with uh, with David. You mean that's when he was a lawyer? Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes when he was how a lawyer. Were people, how were people of color 
handled then? Well, you know, it, it was, I mean, terribly, right? I mean, this is 1859 still. He was not representing a, a black defendant. He was representing a white defendant. Um, he was he was a, a white defendant accused of killing another white man. Um, and um, and it was a fairly typical criminal murder case. And the defense was self-defense. And Abraham Lincoln pulled it off. How did you get all this stuff? <laughs> How? You know, so so the on the Lincoln case, David Fisher came to me and he said, you know, convinced me that this story was out there. I couldn't believe it. But since then, we have just been looking for kind of untapped story. And I have to tell you, finding this this Martin Luther King transcript was such a find um, for us, because, again, it's sort of amazing when you think about the fact that how is it that there is a trial from the early days of Martin Luther King where he testifies? We have all of his own words from the trial that somehow became forgotten to history when this was the case that put him on the map. It's sort of unbelievable. And I, I guess that's what makes some of these projects so exciting. Okay. Have you ever been wrong about anything? Me? Yes. Not. You? Not. What, what are you talking about? No. I well, don't I, know. I don't know, but you're such a smart ass. Have you ever made a wrong decision? I'll tell you the, the case that I got wrong. I mean, you know, I do legal analysis all the time. I like to be careful. Um, I like to focus it on what the lawyers are arguing, et cetera, et cetera. The case that I got just wrong was the Casey Anthony trial that 10 years ago, mother accused of killing her, her little, yeah, um, yeah, her little yeah, um, yeah, daughter. I know, yeah. And Florida, I wasn't thought, that Florida? Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. I thought she was going to be convicted um, and she wasn't. And, you know, unlike, for example, when the world thought that in the O.J. Simpson case, you know, everyone was there were a lot of people who were sort of shocked by the verdict. Those of us who were there weren't surprised. Uh, you know, you covered the O.J. trial. I mean, yeah, it was yeah. it, we were we were not that surprised that O.J. was acquitted based on everything that had happened. But in the Casey Anthony case, I really thought she'd be she'd be convicted. And um, I just got that one totally wrong. Oh, poor baby. OK, tell me now about the Johnny Depp trial with Amber Heard. What do you think? I think that it has been a complete and total um, sort of embarrassment for both of them. But for Johnny Depp, this is his effort to get back. I mean, you know, as you know, he, he was he's out in Hollywood. He's been down and out. He's having a hard time, you know, getting any job. And this trial, believe it or not, everyone says, why would Johnny Depp have brought this case? Why would he have done it, et cetera? This trial has led to Johnny Depp getting something like 50% more followers on social media. He's gotten this big following now of people who are all behind him, devoted to, to Johnny Depp. So, look, the case is a, it's a defamation case. It's a, it's a case over a Washington Post article and whether she defamed him in this article by accusing him of domestic abuse. So what do you think? Tell me what you think. I think they both, I think they both hit each other. That's what I think. <laughs> I think, I think that they both engaged in violence against the other. And I, I think, think so. that each, 
each time he talks about the violence, he always claims it was in self-defense. And every time she talks about the violence, she claims it was just in self-defense. And both of their stories don't hold up. Okay, one other thing I got to ask you before they throw me out. The Mrs. Palauzi, Mrs. Nancy Palauzi, is suing the Pope? I mean, how is that possible? She's not suing the Pope. Well, what is she doing? She is complaining about about the fact that the San Francisco Archdiocese won't give her communion um, because of her position on abortion. I mean, you're really going to take the Pope to court? She's not going to take the Pope to court. She's so what is she going to do? She's a, she's a pain in the ass. I don't care what she takes. She, so. <laughs> she, she's going she's gonna to complain about it, and she's going to challenge it. By the way, there's an interesting question about whether uh, this, uh, the, the San Francisco um, Archdiocese actually has that authority to not grant communion to someone in this way. But, you know, that's, a, that's not a quite a, a legal question. That's not my expertise. That would be a religious um, hierarchy question. Oh, what do I care? You're on the air, so I have to ask you. I have now I had enough of you. You are everywhere. Every time I turn on something, you're there. I have had enough of you at this moment, Dan. Okay? Adams, I've always been a fan. I remain <laughs> such a big fan. I don't care if you want to get rid of me. Um, I, I, I still love you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Dan. Goodbye. My pleasure. Bye. Bye. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I will apologize to my colleagues if my president of this network says, shut up, just talk about Pete Davidson and Amber Heard and not about politics. Okay, I understand that my next speech to you guys could be from the Tulsa Times, but I am a passionate American. I love my country. So you have to allow me to say that I ask what is happening to us, to this world's greatest, most fabulous nation. We have a White House occupant who wobbles, fumbles, burbles, and can barely zip his pants. He could pee in some dignitary's lobby. He hardly knows he's where. He can't handle the border, climate change, COVID, economy, government, immigrant invasion, stock situation, homeless climate issues, foreign threats, press interviews, or his own kin whose gloves may have touched crazy glue. The number one greatest country on earth, that's us. Our leader is a loser who maybe can't even locate the toilet alone. And why do we have him? One reason. May no one deny any American's voting choice. It's up to you. Vote who you like. This is the United States of America. But couldn't part of it have been Trump hate and planted poison that elected this alleged cerebellumless cretin and his VP, whom he didn't respect before and is now just a cutout? Knowing that Joe Poopton is spineless and can't even wrangle two tacos off our border, 
Putin never rated Donald a loser. Now I want to go to some other things. Uh, I want to tell you that this state has had political reapportionment every 10 years. We have just had Long Island's gerrymandering poop. Democratic polls who suddenly lost their seats were soon pawing around their districts and will now only be lefties whose cars won't even turn right. All lefties are now in the gerrymandering process. A head mule who is responsible is called Sean Patrick Maloney. Mostly, he just chews his cud. Albany mouths hope this progressive jackass clumps into the political witness protection program. At least there, he can bray on three bales of hay a day. Wait, I've got some other things I want to say. But I can't find my notes. I just found my notes. Worse than the pandemic coming back could be Fauci. So if you can't rush out and be partying, the alternative now is to stay in and be quetching. Jackets once encircling the waist won't anymore. They don't fit. We got fat. Instead of dinner out, now it's celery. We're clawing a calcified bread crust so fingers can now reach that leftover liverwurst slice that's still there. So what if it's ice cold? Listen, it goes down quicker. We're all gaining weight. We're starving. We're eating what's left over in refrigerators. We're not going out. A fashionista who used to be narrower than string said to me, the problem is you are not exercising. You are not running. Running? I should run? What the hell is she talking about? Two blocks to Dwayne Reed for mascara, and I'm winded. What the hell is she talking about? I should go out running? Listen, I have since learned tricks. I have learned that if you get fatter by sticking home, you loop a rubber band around the waist's button. You then stretch it through the buttonhole. You then re-loop it back to the button. And you also keep your short, cropped jacket to hold everything in. And how's irritation with a husband, a parent, a kid, a housekeeper, a friend, a cheapo uncle, the sponge who lives in? How about lockdown in jail would seem roomier? At least with good behavior, you could maybe bust out of your 800-square-foot cell by July. It's enough already with this pandemic. It's enough with steep keeping us home. And meals? My friend has a live-in unemployed foodie. He wanted bouillabaisse. His lady friend, where he was temporarily quarantined, had one out-of-bed ability that was reheating frozen TV dinners. His next partner is going to be a short-order cook. Also, the dog? The dog is a problem. You got a dog? The dog needs to go out. Like any guy in your life, 
they both need to be on a leash. They both need to sniff around outside, and each, your guy and your dog, requires toilet training. Another thing. Friends once looked you in the eye because they were searching signs of a facelift. Now they don't. They avoid looking at you. Now you look lousy because you have no time for fake nails, fake lashes, fake hair, fake teeth, fake boobs, fake behinds, fake cheeks, and fake whatever else works. You don't get to a hairdresser. You don't find an eyebrow shaper. You are looking for a lip plumper, a manicurist, an eye specialist, an ear specialist, a masseuse, a face doctor, a dressmaker, a wig maker, a fake eyelash gluer. Who the hell knows what to fix first when we're stuck at home and we don't have products? One friend knows exactly what she wants from Santa. A coat? No, a tweezer. Listen, it is getting tough to stay a natural beauty. Wardrobe? Pajamas? Kids crying? It's crosswords. It's monopoly. It's scrabble. It's checkers. It's playing doctor. It's breaking toys, scrambling Legos, drawing on walls. Worst is Hollywood, where people marry in the morning. So, if it doesn't work out, they haven't wasted a whole day. One actress shouted to her six-year-old, I'll send you back to your father. The problem was she couldn't remember who he was. Suddenly, now that we're stuck, chic means a shawl that was a blanket, baggy shirts, ankle-length shapeless moo-moos, laced sneakers, and for some life in a trailer. Today's fashion is marching back to yesterday's covered wagon. Forget home on the range. Be it ever so humble, there's no place like getting the hell out. And don't consider shopping in an actual store where the lone part-timer is just learning how to gift-wrap what you stole one friend tried to shop recently. I need low heels, she said. Yeah? To go with what? Well, her answer was, a short, elderly millionaire. For sure. That's only in New York, kids. Only in New York. And now I am going to say thank you to you all and tell you the one definition you should know of a New York politician that is one who has never been caught. Only in this hemisphere, kids. Only in this hemisphere. I love you. I will speak to you again Sunday.